You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. To this year's edition of the New York Encounter in 2021. My name is Anujit Serene, and I'll be moderating this next event called Not By Profit Alone. Now, before I introduce our distinguished speakers and give you a little bit of a sense of what we'll be talking about, let me first thank Avsi USA for helping to organize this event. Uh, let me also acknowledge and thank uh, Mr. Domenico Fanitza, Executive Director at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, for his uh, participation to, to listen and watch uh, this event this afternoon. And welcome to everyone else today online uh, who, is, who has joined us uh, to what I, I am sure is going to be a very interesting uh, conversation. We're here to talk about how this pandemic has impacted the economy, how it's impacted businesses and the labor markets, and to think about are there new policies or frameworks we may need to consider for the challenges ahead. Now, as, the, as is often the case when a shock hits uh, the economy, uh, it tends to put a spotlight on vulnerabilities that already existed, challenges and issues that maybe we just haven't confronted as a society, but now there's a greater urgency to look at them. Uh, and so in that sense, as we go through this next hour, we'll, our speakers will start by first focusing on uh, what their thoughts were about the main issues uh, prior to the pandemic hitting the economy. Uh, and then we'll talk about you know, what comes after. Uh, the other thing I think that's useful to keep in mind is a little bit of the narrative that brings us to 2021 as well. As I'm sure you are all well aware, the ideological debate, uh, uh, the battle that is between free market capitalism and communism, that was resolved decades ago, right? In the late 80s and early 90s. And in fact, all through the 90s and 2000s, there was this sense that free market capitalism was ascendant. Until, of course, we hit 2008, the great financial crisis, or the GFC, uh, and there was a sense that we hit some type of limit uh, to a point at which uh, that if not for a substantial amount of intervention by the government and by the state, uh, we would have experienced perhaps the second great depression in the United States and, and elsewhere. We as a country voted in that direction. We elected a Democratic President Barack Obama, we put the Democrats in control of both houses of Congress um, because that's the party that best represents and values the role of government in society. But very different from the 1930s and 40s and 50s, it did not endure, right? In the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the Democratic Party held control for a very long stretch of time. The pendulum swung dramatically from one side to the other to, to having a much greater role of the state in the economy. This time, since 2008, we as a country have gone back and forth. There isn't a clear sense of what's next. Um, and this is where our speakers really come in, to really ask ourselves this question, what else can we consider and think about that's not part of our dialogue today? I'm gonna introduce our speakers. There's a, certainly a far more extensive bio you can find of each of our speakers on, on the website, but uh, I, I will introduce each of them in, in alphabetical order. We're joined today by Professor Raghuram Rajan. He is the Catherine Dusak Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School. 
Prior to that, he was the governor of the Reserve Bank of India from 2013 to 2016, as well as the vice chairman of the board of the Bank for International Settlements from 2015 to 2016. Dr. Rajan was the chief economist and director of research at the IMF from 2003 to 2006. Uh, Dr. Ratna Sahe. Ratna Sahe is deputy director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF. She leads key policy papers and projects in the areas of monetary policy, exchange rate policy, capital account, financial development, financial inclusion, and gender and finance. She has published widely in leading journals on monetary policy and the financial sector. And then last, but certainly not least, is Professor Stefano Zemanje. He is a professor of economics at the University of Bologna, and since 2019, president of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. He's the author of numerous books and journals on welfare economics, the theory of consumer behavior, social choice theory, economic epistemology, ethics, the history of economic thought, and civil economy. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So I know we've, we've discussed a little bit of this uh, on some of our exchanges. Um, I really would welcome all of you to really respond to each other as this hour progresses. But just to start off the conversation, a couple of questions maybe to get us, to get us going. And, and Dr. Sahe, um, maybe we could start with you. So you've done a lot of work on the financial system, right, at, at the IMF and thinking about this. What do you think is the sort of the definitive lesson learned or lessons learned from the financial crisis, uh, particularly at a time where I think people still wonder what is the link between you know, Wall Street and Main Street still? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Anujit. Um, so I would say that there were three lessons. So first, we learned very vividly that we live in a globalized world with many interconnections. And so finance is no excep exception. The failure, that the failure of one bank, Lehman Brothers, in one country, the United States, could bring the global economy to a halt was unthinkable only a few decades ago. But today, cross-border flows are the norm. There's a wide range of complex and opaque financial services and products that look very, very attractive, and, and they have proliferated. But sometimes they carry a lot of risks. Now capital moves at lightning speed, transferring such risks across national borders, just like the COVID-19 virus today. So that's one. A second lesson, of course, which follows, is that we need to do a much better job of monitoring, assessing, mitigating, and if possible, preventing financial risks and crises. Otherwise, they can affect whole systems. And this is what we economists call systemic risk. So clearly, strengthening regulation and supervision was a big lesson. And after much hard work, banks are indeed safer today. And we are working towards making the non-bank financial sector safer. I still think that some financial institutions remain too big to fail. We really haven't resolved that moral hazard problem. And finally, the third lesson that I'd like to emphasize, and that's based on my own research and also some research that uh, Dr. Rajan has done, and which hasn't, in my view, caught on widely yet, 
is that there may be too much finance in some countries, especially advanced economies. But what do I mean by too much finance? So conventional wisdom is that financial development helps growth, economic growth. That was true until the 1980s, but that relationship really has broken down with the rapid growth of the financial sector since the 1990s. You know, by some measures today, the depth of the financial sector is more than four or five times the GDP in some economies. So in our research, we found that beyond a point, large financial systems can actually hurt growth. I would say this is a case of too much finance. So why does it hurt growth? Well, there are three possible reasons. A large financial system can increase the frequency of booms and busts, which can hurt growth and, of course, increase inequality. Another argument is that the, there are very high compensations in the financial sector, which diverts talent and human capital away from productive sectors, which leads to an inefficient allocation of resources. And finally, some have also argued that as financial systems become very large, as they did, they acquire not just financial, but political clout that rewards the financial sector excessively. So this leads to a rise in income and wealth inequality and also explains the disconnect between the Wall Street and the Main Street, where, as you can see today, stock prices are at historic highs, even as unemployment and income, especially of low-income households, have fallen a lot during the COVID crisis. So let me stop there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. So Professor Rajan, maybe we could uh, sh shift to you. Uh, I mean, there's the, the lessons learned that Dr. Sahai just talked about from the financial crisis, and, and also this, this sense that I talked about earlier, which is, what's next? Uh, you, you published a very interesting book a couple of years ago called The Third Pillar. What, what is this third pillar? What else do we need to interject into the dialogue here to move forward? Um, yeah, no, uh, uh, thanks for having me here. And uh, let me take off a little bit uh, on where Ratna left off. I mean, clearly we have deep problems emerging uh, uh, in the world. Uh, they've been emerging for the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, Clearly, one of the most important is inequality, both within countries and across countries, that there are far too many people who can't take advantage of uh, the opportunities the capitalist system offers. And, um, you know, before the financial crisis, um, I think uh, one of the attempts to uh, ameliorate uh, inequality when people didn't have jobs was to give them more access to credit. Uh, some of the housing boom, especially uh, housing targeted at low-income segments of society, was uh, in many ways uh, part of the answer. Um, people, uh, 
even if their incomes didn't grow, saw their wealth grow uh, through housing assets and they could borrow. And in fact, when you look at consumption inequality in industrial countries, certainly in the United States, um, it did not go up as much as income inequality did. And of course, the gap was being bridged by the financial sector through easy lending. This can't go on forever. It had to come to an end, and it came to an end with the global financial crisis. But I think uh, uh, since then, we've uh, sort of discovered there are many kinds of inequality. It's not just the traditional uh, inequality uh, you know, across society between different uh, sort of class segments. There's also, in industrial countries, a profound inequality of place, um, partly exacerbated by technological developments, which make, uh, you know, it uh, much more uh, valuable to be in a mega city like New York or San Francisco and not in a small town far away. And I think the inequality of place has translated into a serious inequality of opportunity also. Uh, places which have lost their main manufacturer, partly as a result of trade, are places which are, have uh, been uh, swept by hopelessness, uh, where the schools deteriorate, where you get drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Uh, this is uh, where you get the deaths of despair uh, that have been so uh, clearly documented by, by Angus Deaton and Anne Case. So um, the worry is uh, this is changing the politics of industrial countries uh, significantly, but uh, in the process also changing the politics of many emerging markets. So in the third pillar, I argue that uh, we really have to focus a lot more uh, on uh, what I call the community. Uh, and of course, many people think of communities in, in, in very different ways. But let's talk about what most people think of as a community, uh, a place uh, where people sort of come together to create local institutions, uh, such as good schools, such as uh, you know, a safe and secure environment for kids to grow up and so on. And I argue that uh, really we have to pay attention to the community, this third pillar, if we want people to participate in the other two communities uh, effectively. And the other two communities being the market economy, uh, the economic side, and uh, the uh, government or the political side. And uh, one of the uh, sort of uh, big fragilities in the world today is uh, because people's communities have broken down, they simply are not able to participate in the other two pillars in an effective way. And we get the kind of fractures and frictions that we saw, see across the industrial world, which is also breaking up uh, the integrated world that helped us uh, sort of come where we are from where we were post-World War II. So um, I can elaborate on that, but let me stop there and, uh, and um, uh, hear Professor Zamagni. Yes, please, Professor Zamagni, I would love to have you join the conversation. Um, yes. You've talked, I know, uh, also about some, some similar topics as Professor Rajan just highlighted. Maybe, maybe again, just to start it off, uh, you, you said something very provocative about... Um, uh, about democracy, I think recently I, I heard you say that that we, we think that democracy is only something relevant for the political sphere, uh, and that it's not relevant f for the markets and the uh, the business sector. Uh, that 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 um, uh, democracies are costly; they're time-consuming. Businesses need to be fast-paced, efficient, um, and, and you argue that that separation is a mistake. 
What, is, what does that mean? Thank you. Thank you, first of all, for the invitation, which I was very happy to accept. Coming to the point, in fact, today we are witnessing a, a process moving from the whereby electoral democracy is replacing liberal democracy. And the implication is that the rule of law is being replaced by the rule by law. And uh, we observe a tendency towards uh, neo-patrimonial states uh, where coalitions of elites share rents. Now, it seems to me that this is a major impediment to the advancement of a credible model of global governance. So we are facing, in my opinion, a sort of internal contradiction to the system. In other words, what is the difficulty? The difficulty is that, or how to reconcile the internal governance rules of individual countries, each one of which has its own specific history its uh, social norms of behavior, its cultural metrics, uh, with the uniformity of the rules that inevitably characterize uh, global governments. And in fact, uh, in my opinion, one should uh, not never forget that the constraints uh, external to the country, when it has to shape uh, its domestic policies, always entail a cost in terms of democratic legitimacy, a cost which, as it's happening nowadays, ends up reinforcing irrational pressures towards sovereign populism. And as we know, populism, there are different qualities of types of populism, but they are growing in many parts of the world. It is, therefore, a question of choosing between two alternative concepts of global economic governance which uh, have been called, uh, to use the, his words by Danny Roderick and others, one is the globalization enhancing global governance, and the other option is the democracy enhancing global governance. And uh, the basic idea of the democracy enhancing global governance is that when one starts drawing the rules uh, of a at the transnational level, and from this point of view, the role of institutions such as IMF and many others yeah, is, are, is very, very important. It is necessary, in my opinion, to include among the objectives to be pursued not only the increase in efficiency in the allocation of resources, which is obvious, in particular for an economist, but also the enlargement of the democratic base. In other words, uh, uh, it is indeed true that globalization per se increases the space of negative human rights. In other words, uh, the notion of freedom from, to use uh, the famous Isaiah Berlin distinction. But it is also restricts uh, the space, if not corrected, of positive human rights, namely the freedom of, the freedom of achievement in the sense of, for instance, Amartya Sen, etc. So it seems to me that today we have to debate at the international level because our institutions can play a major role in fixing the rule, and not only indicating the legal rules, which are obvious, but also to use a sort of what we, would we are calling in this period in my country a community index in order to evaluate the merit 
of the various proposals which are put forward. It seems to me that that is a duty which can be performed because it's written nowhere that the economist or economic science should devote itself only, only to efficiency. Because efficiency is an important value, but it's not the only value. Liberty is also an important value. And why should we leave other values to other fields when they are not connected with the, the rules of the game of the intervention? It seems to me that talking in, in these terms might perhaps, perhaps I am too much optimistic, open a new vista in the, I mean, in the near future. Actually, Professor, can you add also to your thoughts on uh, what you refer to as the cooperative economy? I mean, you're hinting at it, I think, in some of your comments already, but what does that mean? Yeah. Yes, I mean, Italy is uh, uh, known also to be a country of, even though the cooperative movement started in France and in England, the first cooperative of success was established in, in England in 1844 in Italy 10 years later. But it is true that uh, uh, cooperative firms uh, play an important role uh, in, the, in Italy as well as in other European countries. Why is that so? Because it is obvious that we would never need the cooperatives only on the grounds of uh, efficiency. Because uh, there are many other forms of enterprises which could do even better. But the point is that cooperatives are fundamental for community building. So I read the book by Rajan. He was also, it was also translated into Italian. And he's right. What we have to do are to move from a, a, a dichotomous model of social order based on state and market to a trichotomous model, namely state, market, and community or as we prefer to call it in Europe, civil society organization. But more or less, uh, uh, this expression is the same as a community. But the point is that community needs uh, some instruments because in order to be built up. Now, cooperative firms are one of such instruments. It's not the only instrument, but it's a potential. Because when people living in a territory realize that organizing their labor process in a particular way, they improve their lot in terms both of income and wealth, but also in terms of happiness, they realize why it is important to, uh, to strengthen the community links. And in this regard, the cooperative type of firms are performing a major role, in particular last year and this year facing the, the pandemic uh, the disaster. The cooperative, if we did not have in Italy cooperatives, would be a disaster because many lives were saved because of the particular way and the particular uh, mode of organization of this type of firms. Um, Anujit, can I just please, please. add something uh, based on what uh, Professor said? Uh, no, you call I, me Stephen. Uh, 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 Stefano. Uh, um, the, look, uh, I think it's, um, I think the emphasis he's putting on social relations is very important. That 
to some extent, uh, we've put a lot of emphasis, and that's, you know, uh, the primacy of the market on economic relationships. But as we become more developed, we can meet economic needs. Uh, we find that uh, social needs are, are left uh, aside. Uh, there's a pandemic of loneliness, which is hitting many industrial countries as people get older. And we need to think about what we need to do there. But there's also uh, something very important to note about the spread of markets across the world. Uh, the general sense is markets and governments are opposed to each other. This was the view in the 20th century. We had all these movements, one emphasizing markets, the other emphasizing the governments. The reality is they're symbiotic. You have uh, stronger markets, integrated markets. There's a push for having stronger integrated government. And to some extent, the point uh, Stefano is making about democracy is really as you have worldwide markets, there is an impetus to have worldwide government and not have a democratic power having much say either at the local level or at the national level. It gets elevated really high. And so what we need to consider as we go forward is, is that the way we really want to go? Do uh, corporations need a um, sort of boundaryless world in, in order to operate? Or can they operate really well uh, with very minimal loss of efficiency with a world with reasonable boundaries where people have the democratic right to, in a sense, set up their own rules and regulations? Uh, I mean, it's useful to appeal to a Catholic principle uh, called the principle of subsidiarity, which is don't elevate rules um, you know, beyond the level that they need to be, uh, uh, that powers need to be exercised at. Push the powers down to the lowest level at which they can be exercised efficiently. If you want, um, you know, uh, to think about what rules should govern primary schools, why does it have to be determined at the national level? A local community can figure out what it ought to teach its youngest kids. But if you want to make rules on climate change, clearly, you need to discuss at the global level because it affects all of us, but it should have the consensus right down to the bottom. If you discuss climate change rules at the top and then transmit it down to the bottom as here are orders from some smoky room that where it was decided in Paris, you get a reaction. People say, I wasn't part of this rulemaking. I'm not going to uh, um, you know, obey the rules that you set up. What we saw with the Gilets Jaunes in, uh, in, in France was precisely that. Uh, rules on, uh, say, carbon tax, uh, on uh, gasoline taxes, which they had no part in determining, and they were protesting. So what I think the fundamental point that, that uh, I hear coming out here is that we need to uh, reassert uh, democracy. And that means, in a sense, placing the powers to decide at the right place. We've elevated them too much and we need to bring them back. And often by doing that, you can have both, uh, you know, more of an emphasis on the so social side, but also not give up efficiency to the extent that sometimes you have to give up if you had a very uh, different change. May I add something on that? Please. Uh, I'm talking to the our moderator. Yes? yes, please. No, I totally agree with uh, Raguram, yes. In fact, uh, uh, any society, as we know, needs uh, uh, 
it's based on three different uh, uh, principles. Exchange of equivalence of value, the principle of redistribution, and the principle of reciprocity. Now, all societies are aware of this triadic structure, but it is a fact that until now, or even recently, only two of these uh, three principles have been incorporated into the models of social order. And that is uh, part of the explanation of the unsatisfactory results that we obtain. For what happens if one of the three principles is absent? If reciprocity is eliminated, uh, what does it mean? We have a model of social order based on state-market dichotomy, what has been called lib-lab-pendulum. The market produces and the state benevolently redistributes according to some criterion of uh, uh, fairness. On the other hand, if redistribution is eliminated, we have the so-called compassionate capitalist model. And, uh, and there is no need to explain because in particular in America, in the United States, this is uh, very well understood. Finally, if we eliminate uh, the exchange of equivalents, uh, we produce uh, those type of collectivistic system that history has proved to be uh, untenable, etc. So that is why we, the principle of reciprocity is what motivates and justifies subsidiarity. Because uh, reciprocity is uh, to give uh, without losing and to take without taking away. And if we pay attention, how do we describe the relationship among the members of the same family, of the same uh, social group? We cannot be, uh, use the word command, or we cannot use uh, exchange of equivalents. Well, that is the typical principle as it is practiced in the marketplace. We use a reciprocity. And that is why we need uh, to strengthen the community links. But to strengthen them, we need to extend the area of application of the reciprocity principle. And that is why cooperatives, non-profit organization, benefit uh, corporation, B Corps, uh, introduced for the first time in the States exactly 11 years ago, and many other type of organization are important because they translate into practice the principle of reciprocity, which is lacking. And I never understood why in economics, in mainstream economics, it is enough to check with the textbooks or whatever, the principle of reciprocity is never mentioned because the typical duty of an economist is to deal with the state or with the market or the relation between the two, forgetting about the so-called third pillar. And that is uh, something which I expect that in the near future will, be, uh, will change because uh, we cannot, in my opinion, continue in this way. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. 
Dr. Sahayek, maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts in what in, in what's just been said also in the sense of, are we talking about here sort of that what we need is more more policies to to support uh, this this emphasis on community uh, subsidiarity or is it more a cultural step like a different position or attitude or value system that gets us there? How do you think about that? And actually, this is for all of you. Uh, so, Anujit, uh, let me just say that I, I very much agree with uh, what both Raghu and Stefano have, have said. Uh, and, you know, just this week, I was listening to a lecture by Norina Hertz, uh, and it, it was about the lonely century. And uh, I was just really shocked to hear some of the numbers. Uh, like during the pandemic, for example, half half the population here feels lonely. You know, 60% of the people in nursing homes have no visitors. Uh, one in five uh, people at work have not a single, have not made a single friend, for example. So I, I guess the bottom line of what I'm saying is that I think we've become way too individualistic. And that's where this role of the community makes sense. But coming back to your question on on uh, policy and culture, I mean, in, in my mind, the two interact. Uh, they're not separate. But working for a policy institution, I'm a very strong believer that policies can change culture. I know it sounds uh, difficult, but, you know, sometimes it doesn't even take much time. And what is really important from what I observe and what I've read and seen is that the signal from the top uh, public and private sector leaders matters a lot. So I just want to give you a, a couple of examples. So, you know, Esther Duflor, uh, the Nobel Prize laureate in 2019 and her co-authors, they conducted studies of the implications of gender quotas policies at the village level in India, at the community level. And they found that exposure to female leaders improved perceptions in India about women's effectiveness and weakened stereotypes about gender roles. So women are now much more likely to stand for and win elected positions. Yet, as an Indian, I can say that we still have a very long way to go. Let me give you an example from, from uh, uh, a private sector. So Unilever, it's, it's a multinational consumer goods company, recognized that women account for 70% of their sales and control 65% of spending. So they began to target the needs of women in their production and sales strategy. Then they partnered with the United Nations and formed the, what is called the Unstereotype Alliance. So many big companies like Facebook, Alibaba, Google, Microsoft, etc. Uh, they joined as partners because they realized that there's a business economic case to focus on, on women. And finally, finally, I just want to talk about my own field because it's so close to my heart. In economics, uh, we found that even though racism and gender bias are detrimental to economic growth, which benefits everybody actually, these topics have little have received very little attention even today. So 
just recently we compiled some data on every article in the top economics journals over the past 10 years and what we found that only 0.2% which is close to zero of the nearly 8000 articles covered the issue of race and more recently a survey of the american economic association of more than 9000 members revealed that about 50% of the women felt they had been treated unfairly compared to only 3% men seven out of 10 of these women said they say that, that they felt their colleagues work is much more valued uh so you know janet yellen recently talked about this and said what you see in the survey is just an unacceptable culture so i am just convinced that even discrimination race gender any other can be reversed by policy too and this is so true about our own managing director kristalina georgieva who was really inspiring us to work more towards uh, rooting out discrimination so let me just stop um anuji just uh, uh, on the question you asked about about policy and and culture i mean i i think it's very important for industrial countries to recognize they actually have a problem of underdevelopment there are many places in industrial countries that would not be out of place in a third world country and uh unless you recognize that uh you will continue a policy of more and more stimulus stimulus works when you are a developed uh, area which just needs a little more oomph to uh, you know to come out of a trough but development is not stimulus development needs much more careful work on local institutions on local infrastructure uh essentially creating the possibilities of local growth and why do i see this i say this because the policy establishment in the united states still doesn't seem to recognize this i mean talk think about the debate in washington today on the one hand the fed has pushed its foot firmly on the accelerator and is going to hold it there no matter what happens uh you know you have a frothy uh, financial market creating some of the conditions that ratna talked about but no matter we're going to put the foot on the accelerator that's fine but also on the fiscal side we have spending and what is the spending it is takes the form some of it the cares act was extremely important in uh, in providing relief to households and 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 firms but of course uh, as larry summers points out there are many households now uh, certainly in the upper income brackets that have plenty of money and that are not spending it we have to be careful about the next round of spending to make sure it's much better targeted at those who are unemployed uh those uh, uh you know uh small businesses that need relief but it can't be yet another open checkbook uh, written to you know everybody uh regardless of whether they need money and 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 what you see in this is this kind of policy diminishes room for the really necessary policy which is targeting better at the areas that have been left behind whether it's the historically uh, disadvantaged communities i'm sitting uh, outside my window i can see the south side of hyde park which was uh, devastated by a previous wave of deindustrialization in the uh, late 70s and early 80s 
or whether it's the new communities which have been deindustrialized, the the manufacturing communities which have, uh, in in uh, in the parlance of ec economists, suffered the China shock. But the point is that we need to work on these areas. Many of these areas, for example, don't have broadband. How can you not have broadband in the digital economy and be part of the economy? The good news about the pandemic is we can spread economic activity wider. Many of us have discovered work at a distance. It will not all stay the same way. Many people will go back to office in the big cities, but there will be many jobs that can now be done four days a week, stay wherever you want, come in one day a week into, into office. These places that have been left behind can actually create the possibility of people coming and staying there. If only they improve their infrastructure a little bit, they have better parks, they have better trails, they have better broadband so that people can work at a distance. Then high-income workers can work there and spread economic goodies across the country. We need to be thinking about new ways of spreading activity, making capitalism work for many more people, perhaps through the kinds of cooperative organizations also that Stefano is talking about. But what we seem to be resorting to is back to the standard playbooks. Central government spends a huge amount of money devised uh, by policies through the center with no thought of what the localities need. And unfortunately, uh, local government, local uh, decision making in the United States has a bad aura with it, uh, you know, uh, tinged by uh, past racism. Uh, and, and the fact that uh, states' rights and local government were emphasized by the South in order to keep uh, African communities down. I think we can get beyond that and recognize that, in fact, if you want stronger democracy, we do need to push much more decision-making, especially in this building back better post-pandemic, back to the localities. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. At FCUSA, we believe your circumstances don't define you. We build relationships to address challenges like poverty and disease and unlock a new outlook on life. In Mexico, Socorro empowers families through nutrition and education so kids can reach their full potential. Queremos que puedan despertar sus deseos para que sean capaces de reconocer que son hechos para el infinito y puedan moverse hacia él. In Uganda, Rose walks with HIV-positive women, helping them recognize their human dignity and find joy. Every human being is not defined by the problems, by the sickness, by the poverty, not even richness. But you are greater than what you can imagine. People are at the heart of what we do. We connect you directly with changemakers like Socorro and Rose. Together, we can build resilience and lasting solutions. This has been a wonderful discussion, but, but I just want to make sure we do come back to the pandemic itself, that um, uh, I think our audience is also interested in understanding, does that change any of this? Does it, uh, does it accelerate this? Is there something else now we need to be thinking about uh, beyond the immediate demand shock and some of the immediate needs as well? 
Yes. Well, uh, I appreciated what um, at the beginning, the first intervention Ratna said about uh, the pandemic. I would have had uh, the following consideration. This pandemic uh, is uh, opening our eyes uh, to three fundamental, fundamental ethical dilemmas. The first one has to do with uh, the following question. For the first time in decades, our, let's say, policymakers have, are facing a trade-off between epidemiological cost, which means lives, and economic cost, which means livelihoods. So the triple question is how to design smart policies which are effective in reducing the spread of the disease while at the same time minimizing economic cost. Second, how large is the trade-off between uh, saving lives uh, and uh, preserving uh, livelihoods? And third, who should bear the burden of the economic cost? Because uh, to answer this question, we would need a distributional pandemic possibility frontier, showing the distribution of welfare costs associated with the different containment and fiscal strategies across different types of workers and families. And this is not done yet. After more than one year from the beginning, I have to stress that is a sort of a failure because the, not to forget about uh, the typical uh, health uh, uh, dimension, but uh, the economic profession at large has not been able to ask themselves the, itself the question, who should bear the cost? The fact is that, as we are observing in these days with the vaccines, the, 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 the burden of the cost are uh, the poor countries and the poor people. And so that is why inequalities at the end of the present year, we expect to increase, etc. But on top of that, there is a, the other ethical dilemma, namely, what is the criterion to be adopted in the allocation of a scarce resource such as a vaccine? We know the story of the vaccine these days, COVAX, etc. Now, so far, the criterion has been the CALIS. CALIS is an acronym which stands for Quality Adjusted Life Years. Everybody takes that for granted, but are we sure? Because CALIS is a criterion which comes directly from utilitarianism. But suppose that for one reason or another, I do not accept the utilitarian philosophy. And there are many reasons not to accept. Why should I impose, uh, why should we impose uh, to the physician's hospital the application of CALIS? And that is a real question, because CALIS pays attention only to, I mean, the, the idea is we should give the vaccine to those who are more productive. So if you are less productive than another, for instance, because you are older than the other one, you should give it up, etc. And that is a spreading this idea in particular in Europe in these days. And, uh, there is, and it seems to me that economists uh, or economists at large should uh, provide uh, uh, an answer to that. Because in my opinion, there are, there are alternatives. Finally, a third ethical dilemma. The recent literature, very recent, talks about optimal 
are lockdowns. But that is sometimes ridiculous. I have read very nice uh, papers, uh, elaborated, mathematically perfect, etc. But they seem not to realize that the very moment you talk about optimal lockdowns, you are not considering the notion of trade-off can be done on terms which are on the same level. But you cannot make a trade-off between a supreme value, such as rescuing a human life and another value, but of a low importance, such as, um, for instance, uh, uh, increasing in income, etc. Because uh, otherwise, uh, we keep on adopting to this case, uh, to this situation, a, a sort uh, of a, a, an architecture of concept which are okay when we talk about uh, uh, private goods, etc. But the, the vaccines are not private goods. They are common goods. They belong to the category of common. They are neither private nor, nor public. And you cannot apply to a common good the same logic, which is uh, okay if you apply to a private or a common. And that is, again, why it, I expect that in the near future, the profession will start considering an expansion of the, let's say, uh, of the vision to be devoted uh, to this issue. Because uh, the problem of uh, optimal allocation of resources is not enough, in my opinion. It was okay until recently, but since we know that in nine, ten years' time from now, the expert inform us that there will be another pandemic, we had better, in these years, uh, to prepare ourselves in formulating proper criteria or behavior. So Professor Rajan and, and Dr. Sahe as well, any other thoughts that you have on how the pandemic, you know, changes things here or some of the other lasting changes that we um, may want to uh, expect? Uh, so, uh let me start with what hasn't changed first uh, before the pandemic, because that's important for us uh, to think about also. So there have been underlying trends, uh, and we've talked about inequality. There's also aging, there's climate change, there's the digital technology uh, that Raghu mentioned. And also there is shifting global economic power. And these trends have not changed. Uh, they're just getting worse. So if you look at income in inequality within countries is high and rising. It's higher in emerging markets, it's true, but it's rising very rapidly in advanced economies. And aging is going to exert pressure on public finances, especially in these advanced economies, which are very high public. Uh, as we know, climate changes is also reducing productivity and growth prospects. And, and really uh, accelerating migration pressures. The, the digital technology we know brings a lot of improvements in productivity, but it has been a major factor in rising inequality. For example, robots place, replacing low-skilled workers. And not to forget that the big techs, like the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, Apple, et cetera, they have gained enormous market power. Also, the geopolitics is shifting. For decades, U.S. has had been the undisputed leader in economics, military, etc. But that is being challenged today. So what has changed 
uh, post-COVID or since the crisis? First, you know, there's a growing realization, and I hope it's there, that the force of nature, COVID-19, can be so much more powerful than the progress we've made in science, technology, economics, finance. I mean, it's been a humbling experience. You know, I already talked about public debt, which has risen very sharply. And, uh, you know, we do need fiscal policy, expansionary fiscal policy to save the lives and also to preserve livelihoods during this pandemic. But it's a legacy that many countries will have to live with. Uh, third, many jobs and firms in contact intensive sectors may be lost and may never come back. We really need to worry about uh, the people who work there, you know. Fourth, it's, it's so clear that you have, we have to invest much more in human and physical capital, including, of course, health, education, infrastructure. But all of this requires broad consensus in society. Yet, social media has also shown how it can polarize societies and hinder consensus building. You know, to me, what has been amazing is how it, it can detract from facts and numbers and show us that the lens through which each of us see truth can be so different. And we need to tackle all of that. So, um, Anujit, uh, it, it seems to me, uh, just following up uh, on what we heard, um, I mean, clearly the pandemic has been devastating in industrial countries. But I think uh, to pick up Stefano's point, uh, it's potentially far worse in many developing countries and emerging markets. And, um, you know, we've seen the spectacle of uh, industrial countries cornering vaccines. I hope this is an early uh, response that down the line, uh, there is a more moderate response in sharing the vaccines because we know uh, from the work of epidemiologists that, uh, you know, if it rages uncontrolled elsewhere, there is the possibility of variants developing, which come back to hit us, which will pierce the protection that the vaccines give us because they're a variant that uh, the vaccines haven't been uh, developed against. And so, uh, you know, this is an area where we need global cooperation, and that has been sadly missing. Uh, I think the key problem has been uh, US leadership has been missing in action so far. Uh, there is a hope that the U.S. reasserts itself in providing and uh, organizing global public goods. But it has to be uh, rethinking this uh, at an order of magnitude uh, different from what, what has been thought of previously. And this is why we need a lot of work strengthening uh, international organizations, perhaps creating new ones, uh, because really, uh, if you think that the industrial countries have been set back a year or two, many developing countries and some emerging markets, certainly in South America, have been set back, uh, you know, by, uh, in some cases, a decade or more. And, and that kind of hit often results in political change. And this is why it seems to me when the West is talking about creating a coalition of democracies, uh, that coalition of democracies may risk having very few followers if the West doesn't buck up and say, we're spending trillions on minimizing the damage to our economies and minimizing the harm to our uh, households. 
why don't we spend a few billions to make sure that the effects on developing countries and emerging markets doesn't result in a rejection of the entire system and an embracing of alternative systems over the next few years because of the effects of the pandemic. And it, it seems to me that that kind of global thinking is needed at a time when the natural tendency is to look inward into your economy. We have big problems. We can't think about the world. Yes. But if you don't think about the world now, you will have big problems five to 10 years down the line when the effects of the pandemic finally play out. So it's, it seems to me, and, and here, this is where uh, I think it's important to look at hope also, that uh, you know the pandemic, amongst other things, has accelerated the acceptance of technology in many ways, which gives us many new ways of dealing with some of the older problems we have. We've, we've realized that you can get 90% of uh, education, um, you know, college education on the web. You can't hit 100% because 100% sometimes better to be in the same room with, uh, with uh, your students and professors to have a vibrant conversation. But you can have a pretty decent conversation as we are having right now uh, uh, on, on the web. And, and so why can't we have uh, you know, better education for many more people who can't access that today because they're limited by distance? Why can't we have more telemedicine? Um, many places don't get access to a good doctor, but we've seen, certainly in the United States, a big movement to, towards telemedicine in the early days of the pandemic. Now, of course, that people can meet a, a little more in person, uh, I think some of that impetus is, is waning, but it, it shows us this can be done. So we need to embrace technology uh, to provide solutions to older problems, but we also need to recognize there are new problems and that unless we tackle them directly, um, you know, systemic change will be forced on us in directions that we don't want. May I, uh, just uh, uh, as you know, a, a new word has been recently coined, that is syndemic. The reference is to the issue, October 2020 issue of Lancet, the famous journal. They said, actually, the present one is not a pandemic, is a syndemic. By syndemic means that the causes of pandemics are exogenous to the virus that produced it. In other words, what we are suffering is not because, only because of the virus. He was a start, but it's to do with the vulnerabilities of our economic and social model. And since I understand that the time is up, let me conclude, as far as I'm concerned, with the, I found this quotation from Jonas Salk. Jonas Salk was the inventor of the vaccine against poliomyelitis, a famous, a famous one. Now, he, in the uh, 1973, he wrote the following. I now see that the major shift in human evolution is from behaving like an animal struggling to survive to behaving like an animal choosing to evolve. And to evolve, we need a new kind of thinking and a new kind of behavior and a new morality. It will be that of the evolution of everyone rather than the survival of the fittest. I was really surprised. And let me add that Salk refused to patent his invention, even though some lawyers advised him to do that 
he would have become very rich. But he said, no, because my vaccine, if I patented, will not reach all the children uh, which are all over the world. And in fact, uh, uh, he insisted on that. Uh, that is why he wrote uh, the words which I have read. Thank you very much. Beautifully said. Thank you, Professor. And yes, we are unfortunately coming up to the top of the hour. I would love to carry on this conversation. Uh, Luigi, can longer. I just say one, make a pitch for just one, one thing? Sure, we've got two minutes. Go ahead. So, so I just want to follow up on what Raghu said. I mean, uh, the globalized world is here to stay. The, the contagion spillovers across national borders are inevitable. And we saw this during the GFC and in the COVID crisis. So it's so clear to us at the IMF that all nations need to work together to find global solutions, whether it's health finance. You know, the, what we, the, after the Second World War, major countries got together, established the Bretton Woods system like the IMF World Bank, and they fostered stable exchange rates and growth of economies. And we saw the biggest expansion, economic expansion after World War II. Uh, same thing with the GFC. International bodies got together, built a new global regulatory standard. The turn has now come to strengthen the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, possibly new institutions, as I would say, Ofora, to regulate cybersecurity, data privacy, social media, as well as rules of engagement for the big techs. You know, I was very heartened to read just yesterday in a press release that the G7 countries have renewed their commitment to multilateralism to solve global issues. At the IMF, we are now focusing on things like climate change, digital technology, inequality, and of course, the pandemic. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, all three of you, for I think it's been a terrific uh, discussion. Uh, thank you for taking the time on a Saturday afternoon to, uh, to be with us. Um, at this point, we do need to conclude. Um, let me just once again thank uh, Office USA for, again, uh, sponsoring this event. Um, if, uh, I would encourage all of you to, to check out the New York Encounter um, uh, website, newyorkencounter.org, to learn about the other events happening this weekend. Um, if you'd like to support the New York Encounter and we could use your support, you can find out more details uh, at the website. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.